As we prepare to open God's word, let's pray and ask that he would bless it to us. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Zechariah chapter 1. We'll be continuing in our series uh, through Zechariah this evening and considering the second passage in the book, Zechariah chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, almost all the way to the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 1, beginning in verse 7 and reading through verse 17. And pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen. And behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Is my mic too high, by the way? Is it too loud or is it okay? Okay, all right. I hear myself very loudly, so I just wanted to make sure I'm not blowing anyone's ears out. Um, Anyway, so uh, when I was young and in... in, uh, in art class, I was not a big fan of art class growing up. I much preferred history and literature, and uh, and even math. It was a close call which one I which one I preferred more. But I did not really care for drawing or art too much. And my art teacher once one time said to me to try to motivate me to uh, to enjoy uh, drawing a little more. She said to me, Drew, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, and uh, and she thought that would maybe help me to understand why learning to draw is so important, why art is so important and to be appreciated. And I have not become a better artist by any means, but I have come to appreciate art. And I think my art teacher was right about that saying, a picture's worth 
a thousand words. Now, I came to find out later that she did not make up that saying. It's a very famous and well-known saying, but, um, but I think she, does ha she did have a point in, in telling me that. Um, there are uh, certain feelings that artwork can evoke, certain things that it can, uh, certain information even that it can communicate that would be hard or would at least take a lot of words to, uh, to, to communicate the same thing. I think of a beautiful painting like Van Gogh's Starry Night or even the actual Starry Night, um, looking up at that. We, we can't quite put into words or it would take many words to, to communicate exactly what those things make us feel. And uh, as we will see, we're coming to a section of Zechariah now that begins a series of visions that Zechariah has. And I think these illustrate for us that concept a little bit, that a picture is worth a thousand words. Visions, of course, are, are one mode of, or one way in which uh, God communicates with his, with his prophets. We saw last week how God can communicate through direct speech. He can say, this is the sermon that you will preach to the people, and Zechariah preaches that sermon to the people. But he can also show the prophet. He can also show them uh, what he wants them to see. We can think, for example, of Genesis uh, 28 with, with Jacob's ladder, where he sees angels ascending and descending on a ladder. And God could have told Jacob, this is the house of God and this is the gate of heaven, but he showed Jacob that this was the house of God and the gate of heaven by showing him the angels ascending and descending. It was a vivid portrayal of that truth. It, was, it spoke to his senses. It, uh, it captured his imagination. And this is the beauty of, of visions. But on the flip side, because visions capture the imagination so much, we also have to be somewhat careful in interpreting them. Uh, we, it's easy to get carried away and overinterpret them. It's easy to, uh, to overinterpret visions. Not everything that we see in visions has some kind of deep and spiritual meaning, and we'll see that uh, tonight, that, uh, that we may be tempted to see some deep meanings in, the, in some of the things of this vision, but... Um, but I may disappoint you and say, this has no deep meaning, so I apologize in advance, or I don't know at least what the, what the deep meaning is. Um, not everything has a great explanation in visions. These are, uh, I think it's helpful in some ways to compare them to dreams. Um, things that we would consider strange if we saw them in our daily lives, uh, there's no problem with those things happening in, in our dreams. And that's somewhat the case in visions. It's often drawn, things from the real world. And we'll see that in the one we're considering tonight. It's very much drawn from Zechariah's context, the vision that he sees. And yet, what he sees is not exactly something that would be totally normal if we saw it in the real world. It's a vivid portrayal drawn with things from the real world. And of course, some things that transcend the real world, heavenly things that... Uh, that God is showing to him. Um, so we'll, uh, one, one other thing that I think is helpful is Zechariah will often ask what the vision means. He'll often say, what does this mean? And so that's what we should really focus on in our interpretation is what, what the angel tells Zechariah that it means. That's, that's our answer. If the prophet doesn't know what it means, then probably we, uh, we, we may or may not know exactly what it means either. So I think those are, some, those are some helpful keys as we start to think about this series of visions that Zechariah is going to have. Well, chapter 1, verse 7 really begins a new section of the book of Zechariah. This, the first section is a very short one. It's that introductory six verses that we considered last week. 
And this week we're entering a new section which is quite a bit longer. It goes from uh, 1 verse 7 through uh, almost to the end of chapter 6. So it's quite long, this section. And it's a series of visions that Zechariah has. He introduces it on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat in the second year of Darius. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo. So again, we, uh, we can pinpoint this date with, with some degree of accuracy, and we know that this is February 15 of the year 519 B.C. So this is a few months after uh, the, the, uh, the sermon that Zechariah preached in those opening verses that we considered last week. This is a few months later than that. And just as a quick reminder of where we are in the history of, of Israel and Judah, in uh, remember 586, they, uh, Judah was sent into exile by Babylon. Uh, the Persians defeated Babylon in 539, and then the next year Cyrus, the king of the Persians, sent the Jews back to their homeland to rebuild the temple, and they did not make it very far. And so as we come to the ministries of Zechariah and Haggai, they're encouraging the people, rebuild the temple, now is the time. This is is what the Lord is calling them to do. And uh, in fact, between what we considered last time, which was October or November of the year 520, and now this series of visions that Zechariah has, February 15 of the following year, the people actually had a, a temple refoundation ceremony in December of 520 that we read about in the book of Haggai. So they did. They listened to Zechariah, as we saw last week. They repented. They said that God was just to have punished their fathers and just to be punishing them. They listened to the words of Haggai, and they began to rebuild the temple. And so this is the context in which these visions come, is the people have just started to rebuild the temple. They need encouragement. They need continued Uh, They need continued support. They need explanation of the meaning of what they're doing. And that's uh, all of these things provide the purpose for these series of visions that the Lord sends to Zechariah. Now, uh, again, he dates this to Darius, right? This is a people who have no king, who are poor and oppressed, who are enslaved by a foreign power. This is really how they think about it. They have no king in the land, and they they feel oppressed as a result. And I think it is interesting, right, as we think about the different ways God can communicate with his prophets. Even though there are different ways he can give direct words like he did in the opening passage, a direct sermon to preach. But this, this uh, intro still introduces this, these visions that come to Zechariah, saying the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. It's fundamentally still the word of the Lord that comes to the prophet in these, in these series of visions that he has. And I think that's quite, that's quite interesting. So just very briefly to give an overview of the visions, and then we'll consider this one more specifically. There, there are eight visions that, that Zechariah sees. And I think it's probably best for us to understand this as happening over the course of one night. He talks about one date at the beginning. And although our, our translations say in verse, seven, or in verse 8, excuse me, I saw in the night, a lot of commentators think that could be better translated, I saw last night. Zechariah is saying he saw these visions last night. These are visions that he saw over the course of one night. So maybe he saw a vision, he woke up and wrote down what he saw and saw another one, or he uh, saw all eight of them and then wrote all of them down. But I think that's probably the best way to take this is that he saw it in one night. We get some imagery in the first vision, some dusk-like imagery, some imagery that communicates just after the sun has gone down. 
and then some imagery in the last vision of sunrise. The sun is coming up, the night is over. So I think, again, kind of this idea of happening over the course of one night. Um, the location of the visions is interesting, too. Um, there's some movement in terms of locations. We'll see in the one uh, we're considering more specifically tonight that there are uh, horses that come from patrolling the earth, and they, and they bring a report to the Lord. And, um, and I think we should understand the place that they come based on several factors, which I'll, um, which I'll get a little deeper into once we start um, thinking more specifically about the vision. But based on several things from this and the last vision, we should probably understand the place that they're coming to as just outside God's palace, as just outside the heavenly court, the divine throne room. This is where the horses are coming to, making their report. The central fourth and fifth visions are inside the heavenly court. So there's some movement from coming to the heavenly court inside and then back out again at the end of the series of visions, God having made his decision about what to do with the information he was given. And so that's, I think, a helpful paradigm for us to think about the visions. And the visions really center on the temple. So we talked about this already, that this is the context that Zechariah is preaching in, is the building of the temple. He's encouraging and explaining the people. And the central fourth and fifth visions are really specific to the temple and to the worship of God that's, take, that's going to take place in the rebuilt temple. And so the temple really is, is a major part, if not the central part, of these, of these visions. It's a very important part of them. Um, and of course, as I said, the purpose, continue to encourage them to rebuild, continue to explain to them what this means, and what it means to have a holy God dwell in your midst. It means you must be a holy people. And so the visions do all of this. They're revelations of God's kingdom and the salvation he's bringing to his people. And this first vision, as we uh, will consider a little more specifically this first vision this evening, um, it really begins to bring this needed encouragement to the people of Judah, simply by reminding them that the Lord rules all things on behalf of his people. I think that's the point that this vision is really making to the people of Judah and to us, is that the Lord rules all things on behalf of his people. And we see three things in particular about God's rule in this passage. We see first that God's rule is all-encompassing in its scope. Second, that it is avenging in its jealousy. And third, that it is abundant in its mercy. So those will be our three points for this evening as we consider this first of Zechariah's visions, uh, all-encompassing in scope, avenging in jealousy, and abundant in mercy. So we'll consider first that God's rule is all-encompassing in scope. And it's really verses 8 through 11 that bring out this all-encompassing scope of God's rule for us. We get a description of what Zechariah sees in verse 8. He says, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. So there's really three components, three things, uh, kind of three separate things that Zechariah sees when he first has this vision. He sees a man riding on a red horse. This is probably the commander of these horses because there's horses standing behind him, groups, three different groups of horses. We can understand three different groups by these three different colors that are given to us. There's a red group, a white group, and a sorrel group of horses, and a man in the front who's commanding these, these groups of horses that are behind him. And we get as well the location of this, 
uh, of this, uh, where the man is stationed. He's among the myrtle trees in the glen, we're told. And then, of course, the three groups of horses are the third thing we get. So we have those three things that Zechariah sees. And he's not sure what it means, and so he does uh, exactly what he should do. He asks, what does this mean? In verse 9, what are these, my lord? And the angel who talked with me, this is a character that we'll see in most of uh, Zechariah's visions, this uh, angel who talked with me. Oftentimes commentators will call him the interpreting angel because he is the one who is especially responsible for explaining to Zechariah what he's seeing. So the interpreting angel, he says to him, um, I will show you what they are. And he points to the commander who's in the midst of the myrtle trees. He points to this commander on the red horse. And, in verse, uh, and, and the commander says in verse 10, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So the three groups standing behind this commander, they're patrollers. They're, they're teams that have been sent out. And really that word that's translated patrol kind of has the idea of going to and fro, of going all over the place. So these teams have been sent out to go all over the place on the earth to see everything. There's nothing that's hidden from them on the earth. That's their, that's their role in this, in this vision. And, uh, and so he gives this explanation. And then we get in, uh, in verse 11, the horses. So again, it's a vision. Probably it's best to understand the horses here in verse 11 answering what they've done. And they say to the angel of the Lord, who again is, a, is another character. We'll only meet him in one other vision. But they say to the angel of the Lord, these are they whom the Lord has sent. Excuse me. I, uh, I went up a line. We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. So this is what the patrollers are saying to the angel of the Lord. All the earth remains at rest. So, so far what we have is kind of this vision of the horses being sent out to patrol and then coming and reporting back their findings. This is, this is basically what we have in these verses 8 through 11. Now, how are we to understand this? What exactly is going on here? in this vision? What is, what's the point that the Lord is making to Zechariah by giving him this vision? Well, the horses are sent to patrol the earth, to go all over, to see everything, and then to report back to the Lord. They're the Lord's patrol that go everywhere. And kids, you may have studied the uh, Pony Express, right? This is a well-known uh, kind of um, mail system from United States history. It was the fastest way to get mail from Missouri to California for a period of just over one year of our country's history. It's kind of a funny story because it, it really did not work very well. It was, it was very fast and efficient, but after a year it had to, it had to close down. But, uh, but the Pony Express was this system that brought uh, mail faster than any other system at the time. In 1860, they, uh, a horseman would get on a horse and gallop full speed for 10 miles, get off that horse, get on a new one, and go for 10 more miles full speed until he got to California. And he was able to make it from Missouri to California in about 10 days, which was very fast in those days, until they installed a, the, the telegraph line. And then it was almost instantaneous, and that put them out of business. But the Persians, 2,300 or so years earlier than, than, uh, than our country's Pony Express, had their own Pony Express system. They had their own system of horses of communication that they used very similar to it. And here's what the uh, ancient historian Herodotus says about this system that the Persians had. 
He says there's nothing mortal that is faster than the system that the Persians have devised for sending messages. Apparently, they have horses and men posted at intervals along the route, the same number in total as the overall length and days of the journey, with a fresh horse and rider for every day of travel. Whatever the conditions, it may be snowing, raining, blazing hot or dark, they never fail to complete their assigned journey in the fastest possible time. The first man passes his instructions on to the second, the second to the third, and so on. Now, of course, this communication system that the Persians had, this way that they could communicate, they had a vast empire, and the way that they could communicate so quickly to, to the farthest reaches of this vast empire was especially important for the king, for the king, because he needed to know at all times what was going on in his empire. He always needed to know what the reports were from the governors of the various provinces, what the reports were from battles that he was not participating in, whether there were any uprisings in his empire. He needed to always be apprised of, of what was going on. And this is really the picture that Zechariah is seeing here in this vision, is of the Lord's uh, patrol system, his reconnaissance team, just like the Persians had. He's drawing from something in his world that he's familiar with. And, and this is what the Lord is showing him in this vision, that the Lord has the fastest communication system in the world, that he's aware of what's going on everywhere at all times, that he has a team that is always keeping him up to date on what is going on over all the earth, right? Not just in the Persian Empire, but over all the earth, these horses say, they've patrolled. The Lord always knows what's going on. And really the setting that, uh, that's described in verse 8 contributes to this picture uh, that Zacharias sees, this idea of, these, uh, of this uh, Pony Express or this reconnaissance team that the Lord has that always keeps him apprised on what's going on in the world. They're among myrtle trees, which is garden imagery. You get garden imagery in this, in this vision. And again, from drawing from uh, the world of, of the Persian Empire, the world that Zechariah was familiar with, palaces in Persia often had gardens around them. And especially there's one palace that's especially uh, famous for having a beautiful garden around it. So we, so we know this may have to do with a palace kind of imagery. And in the ancient Near East, art and literature, oftentimes the, gate, the gateway to heaven, the entrance to heaven, had trees surrounding it. And in Isaiah, we get uh, myrtles are connected with the new heavens and the new earth. So I think really based on this kind of all the evidence that we see with these, with these myrtle trees, with this imagery that we're getting here, we're outside God's palace. That's where the horses have drawn up. That's where they're making their report. They're coming back, and they're outside the the heavenly courtroom. They're outside God's throne room. And they're, they've gone to and fro all over the earth, and now they're making their report there. They're, giving, they're bringing the information to God. And we get another uh, description here. They're in the glen. And this word glen is a very difficult one to translate. There's five or six different ways that commentators have suggested that this word should be translated. But I think really the best way to translate it is probably just shadowy place a shadowy place. And this is, again, kind of helping us to communicate the time aspect of this. It's a time just after sunset. Zechariah's night visions have just begun. It's just after sunset. It's dusk out. This is the time that he sees this. And it's also communicating secrecy to us because secrecy was an important part of this king's reconnaissance system, that, the, that 
people would not know all the information that the king knew, that he would be able to make an informed decision uh, based on the information before anyone else had it. And so maybe we're getting some imagery of secrecy here as well. Speed and secrecy both are really, uh, are really key with this kind of system that the kings have set up and that we're getting a picture of that the Lord has this, has this system. The colors of the horses, I think um, this is one of those things I don't think has a really deep spiritual meaning, um, but possibly pointing to status. We get some kind of comments and some uh, writings in the ancient world that somebody who was able to own horses of different colors was known to be a, pers- a high-class person, a wealthy person, and that would make sense. The Lord has a team of horses, and who can be more high-class than, than the Lord himself? He's the one with multiple colors of horses um, who patrol the earth on his behalf. So let's zoom out for a moment and think about what the big picture is with this vision. What is it communicating? Well, it's communicating that the Lord knows what's going on everywhere, that nothing is hidden from him, that he's aware of what's going on at all times, everywhere in the world. And again, I think there's an element of secrecy here that even if not everybody knows what's go- that the Lord sees everything, right? Often and oftentimes we don't, we don't think about and, and there's no clear signs to us that the Lord sees all. But this vision is communicating to Zechariah and the people that he's writing to, the people that he's writing this vision down for, that even if you don't always realize it, the Lord does see everything. He is, he is patrolling the whole earth. He always knows what's going on, even if it's not always obvious. He's always governing and ruling all things. Now, we get in verse 11 that report that I mentioned, right? All the earth remains at rest. This is the report that the scouts, that the patrol team has brought back. And this report, this, this uh, language, all the earth remains at rest, I think is alluding to Isaiah 14, verse 7, where, uh, where it's part of this uh, hymn that I'll explain, or kind of a song that I'll explain in a moment. But Isaiah 14, verse 7 says, The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth in singing. Now, in Isaiah 14, the Lord is, is promising through the prophet Isaiah days when Israel and Judah will rule over those who once oppressed them, when they will, uh, and this verse 7 is part of a taunt that they will sing to the king of Babylon when they defeat him. They will sing a taunt, and they'll say, all the earth is at rest. They break forth into singing. That's part of this context. One of the, one of the verses says, that Israel will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. So this is really the context that this, that this verse comes in. All the earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth in singing because the Lord's people are in their rightful place. That's why they're singing. But it's interesting because in verse 12 of our passage, the response that's given is not singing to this. We would expect, based on what we read in Isaiah, that the response, all the earth is at rest, that this report that the scouts have brought back would result in breaking forth into singing. But that's not at all what we get. It's sorrow that we see in verse 12. The angel of the Lord says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? Now this term, how long, these uh, are, are common words that we find in the Psalms especially, the Psalms of lament. These are words that God's people cry out to God 
that God's oppressed and sorrowful and downtrodden people cry out to him and ask him, how long until you act? Will you cast us off forever? How long, O Lord, they say. And here it's the angel of the Lord who is crying out these words on behalf of the people, interceding for the people, pleading their cause, advocating for them. How long, O Lord, will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? Now, who is this angel who is interceding for the people? Who is this angel who's advocating for the people, who is pleading their cause, even if the people themselves are not crying out this this, uh, this cry of lament, how long the angel of the Lord is crying it out for them. Who is this angel who, who the Lord listens to? As we'll see in a moment, he answers the plea of this angel as well. Who is this? Well, I think we're very on safe ground. I think we're very warranted in saying that this is the pre-incarnate son of God in this vision that Zechariah is seeing of this angel of the Lord the Son of God, appearing to Zechariah in this vision, advocating for his people, pleading their cause before the Father, uh, interceding for them, just as he does before the Father for us now. Right? He's doing the same thing for Zechariah and for the people of Judah, asking the Lord, how long, how long, O Lord, will the exile continue? And why is it that he is crying out in sorrow rather than in singing. Well, it's because the promise of Isaiah 14 has not been fulfilled. Because there is no king in Judah and in Jerusalem. The people of Israel are not ruling over their enemies. They're the ones who are being oppressed by their enemies. They're the ones who are enslaved by their enemies. The the promise of Isaiah 14 has not been fulfilled. They are under foreign dominion and oppression. The nations are at rest. This was the, this was the report of that angel, of, of, the, uh, of the patrol team. Excuse me, the nations are at rest, but not Israel. A king of the nations is on the throne, not the king like David that Israel was looking forward to. And it's been almost 70 years since the exile, and the temple is still in ruins, has still not been rebuilt. The people are still poor, and they're asking that question that we that we talked about last week, has God forsaken us? This 70 years is a reference to a prophecy in Jeremiah that, uh, that the exile would last a period of 70 years. And this period of 70 years is something that we see referred to several times as being fulfilled. And now they're saying, yes, you brought us back from the exile, but in some, in some sense, the exile is still con- continuing until the temple is rebuilt. And so it's been almost 70 years since 586 when they went into exile, and they're still in this destitute state. But the Lord responds. He listens to the cry of his son, of this angel of the Lord. In verse 13, he says, The Lord answered gracious and comforting words. The Lord knows all. He knows the plight of his people. He has the fastest communication system in the world. And when his people call out to him, when his son intercedes on behalf of his people, he will not hide his face from them. He will answer them gracious and comforting words for the sake of his son. His rule overall is on behalf of his people, and that's really what we see 
in the remainder of this passage in verses 14 through 17 is that his rule is not only all-encompassing in scope, but that it is also avenging in its jealousy and abundant in its mercy. And I know that first point was, was quite a long one, but the second two will be, will be much shorter than, than that first one. Um, so we'll move to our, to our second point now, avenging jealousy. And that's really what we see in verses 14 to 15 of our passage, is the avenging jealousy of God's rule. This is the words that Zechariah is commanded to cry out. These are the gracious and comforting words, the angel, that the Lord answers. And Zechariah is commanded then to cry these out to the people, to answer these gracious and comforting words to the people, to give them encouragement. And he says in verses 14 and 15, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. The Lord is extremely jealous, he says, for Jerusalem and for Zion. And we see God's jealousy. I think maybe someone can correct me on this if I'm wrong uh, afterward, but I think the first time we see God's jealousy mentioned in Scripture is in the second commandment um, in Exodus 20, where, where we read, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So why are the Israelites not to worship other gods? Why are they not to make carved images and bow down to them? Because the Lord is a jealous God. He is a jealous God. And what does that mean for God to be jealous? It means something similar in some ways to being zealous or to being passionate for his own, uh, for his own glory that his own name might be magnified, that he might be worshipped to the exclusion of other gods, that, that his name might be worshipped alone. That's the idea that God's jealousy is communicating. And he takes this really seriously. He, as, as we continue to read in the second commandment, he says, for, for the Lord your God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. In other words, you don't want to be on the wrong end of God's jealousy because he punishes severely those who, who violate his, his name and his glory, who worship other gods. He is jealous for his own name. And you do not want to be on the receiving end of that jealousy, of that jealous anger of our Lord. He's jealous for his name and for his worship, but he's also jealous for his people. He's exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. He's exceedingly jealous for those who dwell in his holy city, for those who worship on his holy mountain, is what this, this is getting at. He desires them for his own possession, that they wouldn't be oppressed by the nations, that he would have them for his own, that they would dwell with him in peace and security. We often get the imagery in scripture of, of, of God, or of Israel as, as a wife to the Lord. As a, oftentimes as an unfaithful wife, but the Lord cares for Israel like, like a husband cares for his wife. And we get that imagery, of course, in the New Testament as well about Christ and his church. He's jealous as a husband is jealous for his wife, jealous that no one else should oppress her, jealous that no one else should have her for their own. And the nations are on the wrong side of this jealousy. They're oppressing God's people. They are... They are not allowing Israel to continue 
or to, to institute true worship, they're, they're opposing this. We read in Ezra and Nehemiah about all kinds of opposition that the nations mount against the, uh, the people rebuilding Jerusalem, the temple, and the walls of the city. The nations are opposing this. They're not letting Israel have the king, that uh, God's appointed king on the, on the throne. They're on the wrong side of this, of this jealousy. And, and so what we understand from this is God will avenge. He will avenge the nations. He will, or he will avenge their, their ill treatment of his people. And this is why in verse 15 we read, I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. This is the same language, actually, this language of anger that we, got, that we saw last week in verse 2. Uh, in, at the very beginning, the first words of the Lord that came to Zechariah, the Lord was very angry with your fathers, but the people repented. They turned to the Lord, and now we get the same language. The Lord is exceedingly angry with the nations who are oppressing his people. The Lord used uh, Babylon especially, Assyria and Babylon. He used these nations as instruments to punish his people, to send them into exile. And yet, in a very real sense, they overstepped their bounds. The Lord promised the end of exile after 70 years. His wrath has been poured out. His anger, we we read in Psalm 30, God's anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. This is why he says he was angry but a little, and they furthered the disaster, because God's wrath has been poured out. It has been spent on his people. He has turned toward them in, in kindness and in mercy and the nations are furthering the disaster, continuing to oppress his people, continuing to oppose uh, God's work among them. They're at ease, in other words. This, this peace of the world, the nations which are at ease, has not come to God's people. And this is really something we see expounded on more. This idea of God's avenging jealousy for his people is something we'll see as we consider Zechariah's second vision next week. He'll talk more about how God will bring vengeance on the enemies of his people and on his enemies. But these gracious and comforting words continue. They're not only words of of vengeance, of avenging jealousy against the enemies of God, but they are words of abundant mercy for God's people. And so we'll consider that in our third point, our third and last point of the evening. God's mercy, God's abundant mercy for his people is what we really see in verses 16 and 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Now this these words, I have returned to Jerusalem, right? These are an answer. These, God made a promise to his people through Zechariah in those opening verses that we considered last week. Return to me, and I will return to you. And now he says to them, they have repented. They've turned to him in, in repentance and faith. And he says now, I have returned to Jerusalem. And my house will be rebuilt. His presence, in other words, will once again be among his people with mercy and not with judgment. The temple will be rebuilt in their midst. And remember, an important part of these visions is bringing motivation and encouragement to rebuild, to continue the work. It's only been a couple months since they started rebuilding the temple. They need encouragement. 
and the Lord promising my house will be rebuilt is, is a big part of that encouragement that they need to continue that work. But it's not only the temple, it's all of Jerusalem that's going to be rebuilt. That's this idea of the measuring line being stretched out. That's what this is communicating. Because a measuring line is what would be laid out uh, to mark where the walls of a city are going to go. The builder would, would lay out the measuring line and say, this is where I'm going to put the walls of the city. And so really it's symbolism for the rebuilding of the entire city of Jerusalem, that God is favoring his people. And, and this idea we'll, we'll see expanded on God returning to his people, the Jerusalem being rebuilt. We'll see that expanded on really in the third vision of Zechariah. So we're seeing already how the visions uh, have this really nice structure to them, how the second and third are expanding on what we see here in the first. But there's a result we see here of, of the return of God and of, of the rebuilding of his city and of his house. He says, My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Now he repeats this word again several times in this verse. He says, Again, I will comfort Zion. Again, my cities will overflow. Again, I will choose Jerusalem. And the reason he's saying again is because he's looking back to the time of David and Solomon, the, those great days that, that, the, Juda, that um, the Judeans really looked back to as the days of the greatest prosperity of Israel and Judah, when David conquered all the enemies of God, finally was able to take Jerusalem, settled the ark on Mount Zion, and when Solomon built the temple, and there was prosperity for everyone. This is kind of the imagery that's associated with the time of David and Solomon. And the Lord is saying that prosperity is coming again to Jerusalem and to the cities of Judah. Prosperity like the time of David and Solomon. I'm bringing that prosperity again. When, when their holy God will come to dwell among his, among his people in his holy temple in the rebuilt city once again. And again, this is really encouragement to the people. Keep rebuilding. Be faithful in what you've been given. It may seem really small, right, as these, as these poor uh, people who, uh, who are just starting to rebuild, again, after all these years of the temple lying in ruins, as they put brick upon brick and stone upon stone, they probably feel very discouraged a lot of times by this. And yet the Lord is saying, be faithful with what you've been given, even if it's small, even if it appears small, um, there are greater days which are ahead for you, the Lord says to them. So this is really God's answer to that question in verse 12 that the angel of the Lord posed. When is the prophecy of Isaiah going to be fulfilled? When will the Lord have mercy? And he, and he quotes, actually, Isaiah 14 at the conclusion. Because in Isaiah 14, the way that whole progress begins of the Lord promising that his people will rule over those who ruled over them. The way that begins is by saying, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel. And here he ends by saying, the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. In other words, he's saying he's not forgotten his promises. He remembers the promises he's made to his people. He will, he's heard them and he will bring them comfort and peace. And as we come to a close then this evening, brothers and sisters, I think oftentimes we can feel like these uh, people who are, have returned from this exile, who are being encouraged by Zechariah to rebuild the temple. We can feel unimportant compared to the great 
uh, nations that are around us compared to the to, to all, the, um, all of our culture around us and so many things, we can feel unimportant and small as the church. We can feel like all the nations are at ease and like we are uh, in so much turmoil at times. We're called like these exiles to faithfulness and what we've been given, even if it seems small, even if it seems like we have not been given much, we're called to be faithful with it, to continue to uh, care about the true worship of God to continue to care about the love of God and neighbor. We're really in a time of less glory, like these people were, less glory than the time of David and Solomon. We're looking forward. They looked back to a time of great glory. We're looking forward to a time of great glory when our Lord returns. But the message of this passage for us is even though the church may look small and weak, and we may feel small and weak and unimportant at times, the Lord sees us. He sees everything. He has, a, he has the fastest communication system, the fastest reconnaissance system in the world. That's what this vision tells us. He knows our plight. He hears our cries of how long, how long until Christ returns. He hears those. And he tells us that greater days are coming, days of prosperity, days of comfort. And we know this. We know this. We can have confidence of this because of the work of Christ, because Christ has won those days for us. Through his perfect obedience, he has won us a right to those days, to the new heavens and the new earth, to dwelling with God forever. And even though Christ is absent from us, he's with us, absent from us in body. He's with us through his Holy Spirit. And he's interceding for us just like he did in Zechariah's vision, just like he interceded for the people And so we can have confidence the Lord will hear us for his sake, just like he heard these poor returned exiles. He will hear us for the sake of Christ. And so we should take heart, because our Lord is in control of all things, even if we often feel weak and forsaken. He is jealous for you. He cares for you. And so we should take heart. Christ loved his church. He gave himself up for her. This is the imagery we get again of husband and wife. That is how much he cares for us and loves us. And so we should continue to be faithful in what we've been given, continue to cry out to the Lord, knowing that he will hear us for Christ's sake and know that greater days are coming, that he promises this to us and that we can have full confidence, full assurance that we will will see those days for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you that not only do you rule and govern all things, but you rule and govern all things on behalf of your people. Thank you that in these last days, Christ has won prosperity and comfort and mercy for us, that you have given him all authority in heaven and on earth, and that he rules all things on behalf of his church. We are so grateful to be called your people and to have confidence that even though we may be weak and feel despair at times and cry out how long until our Lord returns in glory, that you know our needs and you hear our cries for the sake of Jesus Christ. May we be faithful with what you have given us. May we strive to be the holy people we are as you dwell in our midst. And may you receive all glory and honor and praise together with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Amen.